Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And this is episode 27 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this episode 27, we are going to be talking about the meet that recently was our district meet number two that was back at ABC, uh, Alliance Bible Church, just a couple of days ago. And it was an enormous amount of fun, despite the fact that my voice was virtually non-existent or, or at least not reliable the entire time. Uh, it was still a lot of fun. I got to answer judge a lot, which was great, uh, because I got to whisper instead of actually talk. Uh, but the much fun was had by all. And of course, Scott has some wonderful things to talk about in terms of what happened at that meet in terms of statistics and other sorts of questions that came out from that meet. We're going to talk about John chapter 8 and chapter 9 in review. We were going to attempt to throw in John chapter 8 in a podcast uh, that we were going to record prior to the quiz meet that was this last weekend uh, so that, you know, because we were quizzing this last weekend through uh, John chapter eight, but I was sick. We didn't get around to it. Now we're, I'm feeling a little bit better. We'll actually be able to record, uh, uh, uh or talk about both eight and nine in, in this particular recording. And then, uh, uh stuff I'm looking forward to very much, uh, is, uh, our questions that have come in from our listeners. We have a smorgasbord of very interesting and compelling questions, uh, that have come in from various different listeners, uh, within the last couple of weeks, couple, three weeks or so. So, uh, we're going to dive through those. And of course, if you have questions for the podcast, please email them to iq at cbqz.org. That is iq at cbqz.org. And we would very much like to hear from you. And we'd very much like to hear your disagreements, in fact, uh, and be able to uh, answer those on the air. And, of course, you know, try to convince us to change our minds about anything that we've talked about. We very much would like to hear from you. Uh, so we appreciate that uh, very much. All right. And so with that, uh, Scott, uh, what were your thoughts about District Meet number two? I thought District Meet 2 was great. You're a little bit under the weather, so it was awesome to have five Quizmasters, so you did not have to Quizmaster. Um, and we had no CBQZ showstoppers, which was awesome, and you were there to um, fix up the little CBQZ things that did happen and kind of clean up those finer points. But it was a great meet. We had no logistical problems. We had wonderful new quiz time equipment. Um, all the people that need to do things to make a meet run did them as expected, and I think it was a really great meet. Yeah, it was fantastic. I love the new equipment. Uh, I love that every room is the same. I love the the fact that every room is reliable. I love that there was no, the sort of the usual frantic last minute, oh no, something doesn't work in room something. And we're running around, you know, five minutes before the first quiz. None of that happened. I, it was, it was, it was kind of weird. It was almost anticlimactic. Uh, nothing bad happened. It was fantastic. No, I think mental fatigue can really, really tire you out more than physical fatigue. I remember a quiz meet when I was a quizzer, and it was the fourth district, so getting close to the Great West and Internationals cutoff, and I was sixth trying to move up to fifth, or I was somewhere in the top ten trying to move up to fifth. And I just worked and worked and worked and worked really hard during the meet. Um, and when it was done, I went home and I slept from, like, uh, I think it was from 6 p.m. on Saturday until noon the next day. So something like 18 straight hours, no sickness or anything, just mental fatigue. Um, and kind of contrasting that with now, like it, like years ago, I ran a lot of the quiz meet. I did a ton of the prep, and the equipment was very flaky. And as a result, as soon as the quiz meet was done and the, the adrenaline from the meet was burning off, I was 
completely like tired and just craving the worst food for you, like greasy burger and fries. And then I would just collapse at home. We're now like this year, both because I've been working hard to delegate stuff to our capable um, other people, but because we have much better equipment now, I'm not too different at the end of a meet than I am at the beginning of the meet, which is kind of a nice change. Yeah, it's fantastic. I, I speaking personally, I felt slightly better towards the end of the meet um, than I did at the beginning. Uh, although it varied, I was uh, dealing with something going on in my throat, and so my glands, uh, you know, you have these like I guess lymph nodes or something in your neck or something. And uh, on Friday, towards the end of the day, uh, towards the evening, my glands just started getting so swollen in my neck. That it was, uh, even without swallowing, I was just, I was just in this sort of like this constant pain. I uh, went home. I had ended up leaving a, a little bit early. I think I left like half an hour early or something, uh, to get home just a little bit earlier, take some meds, slept, came in the next morning, was just constantly drinking gallons and gallons of, of like, uh, tea throughout the day. Um, and I think it was sometime around lunch or maybe a little bit before lunch where my glands started started to like get a little bit smaller and I started to feel a little bit better. And it's like my voice never fully returned, but it was kind of like, oh, like I can actually swallow without, you know, cringing in pain. Like, like this is actually starting to feel a little bit better. And then so by the time the meet was over, uh, I, I remember going out in the parking lot and I was talking to a couple of folks, a couple of the coaches that were leaving about a couple of logistical things. And I remember actually being able to talk, which was fantastic. But then that same sort of, ex the, the same sort of, uh, experience that you were talking about where like after, after the meet was over and I'm, I get in the car and I'm starting to drive home, normally I'm utterly wiped out, exhausted. I go home and I completely collapse. And this time, despite actually being sick, I was actually feeling like not that bad. I wasn't actually drained. I was actually excited and energized by what happened uh, over the course of the meet. I mean, it was, it was, it was sort of like the way things ought to be. The meet just kind of worked out without too many hiccups. Yeah, it's wonderful. I've got a bunch of kind of statistical, interesting things to dive into. Um, and please jump in at any point, Griffin, with questions or comments. But at this past meet, so one thing that I do is, um, you know, quizzers get an average for a meet. And if you sum up all of these meet averages over their career, it's kind of um, a measure of longevity and doing well in quizzing. Because um, most, most quizzers have a, a very similar career arc where they're not too strong in their sixth and seventh grade years when they're learning how things are, how things go and they're figuring out what their motivation is. And then they do their best in kind of those ninth and tenth grade years. And then in the 11th and 12th grade years, when they're either preparing for college or um, taking on other interests, their scores kind of come back a little bit. Um, but if you sum up all of these meet averages, it's kind of a rough career score. Um, and at this past meet, Samuel from ABC passed his brother um, Daniel's career average. So he's now the, the highest scoring in that family. Um, looking at meet to third and fourth person bonuses... So which quizzers were the third or fourth person bonus the most often? Well, Camden from Lighthouse was that bonus five times. Um, Micaiah from ABC and David from Lighthouse were that bonus four times. And then Thompson from ABC, Peter from Lighthouse, and Elijah from Trinitas 
were that bonus three times. And I always like to highlight those quizzers because they're often not the highest scoring quizzer or even second highest scoring quizzer on a team. But those questions are hugely impactful when they do happen. And if they're happening with any sort of consistency, it's it's a real lift to that team, be it prelims or in a bracket. Um, looking at prelim team scores from this past meet, Gig Harbor had the largest um, standard deviation. And so standard deviation is kind of showing if, if it's large, it means you were very inconsistent. But I kind of look at it as... If, if they were able to have a couple very high scores, like they scored over 200 twice out of their six prelims but still did not make top nine, it kind of shows that the potential is there, the material knowledge is there, and for whatever reason, maybe a hard draw or just some tough circumstances um, kept them out of top nine, but um, I'll be interested to look for greater consistency and greater consistency maybe towards the 200-type scores rather than the 30- or 20-type scores that they, they had a few of. Um, Dallas won. They won every prelim that they were in. So every all six of their prelims they won, and they made only one error in all six combined, which is pretty impressive. Looking at some quizzers that kind of made a big move um, at meet two. Now, all of this is based on their average through two meets, which is just the average of meets one and two. It kind of hides some of the complexity or the potential because... These quizzers get to drop their worst score of the first three meets. Um, and so their their year-to-date average after the third meet is a much better picture, but we can still see which ones kind of improved their standing. And Andrew and Samuel from ABC both moved up four spots in the rankings, from fifth to first and from seventh to third. And those are pretty big moves when you're up at that point. It was good to see Aiden and Blake from Lighthouse and Matthew from ABC quizzing. They weren't at the first meet, but they all did well, so they jumped from about 100th to in the 40s or 50s. Um, Lincoln from Madras jumped up a bunch. Dominic from Christ Central. Annie from Lighthouse. Ashley from Gig Harbor. Danny from Eastridge Baptist. Ethan from Lighthouse. Aiden from Christ Central. They all really improved um, from meet one to meet two, and it's, a, it's great to see. What else do I have here? Oh, so, you know, I was talking about the standard deviation for a team's score in prelims um, as kind of if it's high, it's a sign of inconsistency, but maybe a sign of potential as well. Um, So I also looked at the um, standard deviation of meet two quizzes per quizzer. So say like a quizzer had eight, nine, or ten quizzes that counted for their average. If they had a high standard deviation, it means that they were very inconsistent and variable, but it does show that they know the material because they're able to get high scores. Um, and again, I think these quizzers have the the potential or the ability to kind of add more consistency and really see their scores, their overall score improve. Um, Caitlin from Gig Harbor had a standard deviation of 40 among her quizzes, which is crazy, you know? It's getting a lot of 90s and a lot of zeros, Um but the potential is definitely there. Michael from ABC, Ashley from Gig Harbor, Aiden from Eastridge, Miriam from Lighthouse, Anna from Grace Harbor. All these quizzers had a very, very high standard deviation, and I'm, I'm always interested to see um, how that changes or doesn't change going forward. Looking at Great West. So we take 20 quizzers to Great West. I expect to take 20 again this year. Um, the scores and averages through meets one and two are very, very similar to last year. So I'm I'm cautiously projecting that an average of 40, 40 even, will be right around 20th place 
come end of meet five, give or take two or three average points. So if you're interested in taking in making Great West, that's kind of a, a, a minimum target. So if your average is below 40, um, I would start talking with your coach and your more experienced teammates and theorizing ways to improve your scores. Um, and if it's above 40, um, I would work to maintain what you're doing and get as far above 40 as you can because there's always variance year to year. Um, but I am seeing pretty similar scores to last year. And then the last thing stats-wise I wanted to chat about, Griffin, we can take as long or as short to talk about this, is um, kind of a brackets analysis. So looking at the quizzers in our top 20 and what brackets they have been in after prelims. So looking at the, their top five, um, they have all been in exclusively semifinals. So it's showing that being in semifinals is likely... Um, requirement's too strong, but it, it will likely be required to be in semifinals for most meets, if not all, um, if you're wanting to be in the top five come the end of the year. Now, that said, the quizzer who's fifth right now has a 72 average, 72.5, and the quizzer that's sixth has a 71.58, so almost the same. And the quizzer who's sixth did spend a whole meet in Constellation A. So... Um, I think it definitely will be possible to quiz in Constellation A a meet or two. It just requires, like, you know, it is easier competition in Constellation A, but you have to be good. Like, you have to pretty much get 80s and 90s in all of your Constellation A quizzes if you are seeking to make internationals. Um, I think it can definitely be done. We've seen, like, Bryce did it many times. Um, then I've seen quizzers like Jeremy and Jesse spend a random meet in Constellation A, and they did very well. Um, so it can definitely be done. I don't want to act like if you have a single meet in Con A, then you're just out of the running for internationals. But um, we do like, I do like it that our top five have been in semifinals exclusively because it's tough competition. Looking at our top 20, we do have a handful of quizzers that have sp spent a lot of time in Con A. I think that's totally fine. Um, we have brackets for a reason, and we weight them in such a way to try to keep things even. Um, and in the top 20, there's just, there's only one quizzer who has been in Con B both meets. Um, there are three quizzers in the top 20 who have spent one meet in Con A and one meet in Con B. Um, and I think that makes us good. Like, we're not wanting Con B to be super easy and have a quizzer, have many, many quizzers be able to make it into Great West, um, while spending a lot of their time in Con B, but a few is fine. And it's, it's shaping up kind of exactly as we hope to reward quizzers. Um, and the brackets are definitely, like, they're, they're tiered, top nine, middle nine, and then bottom um, eight or nine teams. And as quizzers in, say, Con B do very well, oftentimes that encourages them, motivates them to study more, and then by next meet, they're doing well enough in prelims that their team makes Con A. That's already happened with the team from Chris Central, and it's awesome to see um, that it happens those Kane teams, they get the encouragement and the motivation and up their game a little bit and make semifinals. And that's kind of how the brackets are exactly designed. There's different levels of competition that reward different levels of memorization and material knowledge, but in an attempt to encourage quizzers through correct question. And that is my stats sum up from Me Too. Very cool. Very excellent. Well, I don't have anything to add there. Um, why don't we move on to some of the other stuff from Me Too? All right, so we've got some interesting reference question stuff. Um, 
let me pull up the references. So we're talking about John 8, 3, and 8, 4. And we're talking about a single answer chapter verse reference. Um, so I have, I have the CVRs in the question set, according to John 8, 3, caught in what? Answer being adultery. And in John 8, 4, caught in what? The act of adultery. And as I was asking these questions, I was kind of playing it out in my head. Like, like this is what I often do in reference questions. I say, if the quizzer gives me this question, or if they say this, what will my ruling be? Um, and after chatting with someone, um, I came to the conclusion that if I'm asking the CVR from 8.3, caught in what? Adultery. If the quizzer says caught in the act of adultery, I'm going to call them out of context for going into verse 4. But if the reverse happens... I'm asking the CVR from 8.4, caught in what? If the quizzer says caught in adultery, I don't think that's enough for me to call them out of context for going into verse 3. Um, and so it's kind of a small loophole for the quizzer. If they jump on a CVR from either verse saying caught in adultery first, it's kind of hard for a quizmaster to count you wrong. But if they prompt you for your question, you can just say caught how or caught in what. Any thoughts? I completely agree. I mean, I, I would say if if you were asking a CVR from eight four caught in what, and you said, and the quizmaster says, or sorry, the the quizzer says adultery, I would think that uh, the quizmaster should say more. Uh, or I mean, they 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 they've they've they haven't told you anything incorrect. They've in fact given you a partially correct answer. They're not out of context, but they need they definitely need the word act. It's a uh, uh, it's a, a unique word, so it is it is uh, functionally required. Uh, but even if it wasn't functionally required, I think it would be generally required for this particular question in eight four. So yeah, I mean, start with adultery, uh, be prompted for more, add the act of uh, what's your question, caught in what, uh, and I think you're good to go. Yep, I agree, and it's it 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 could kind of be considered a flawed question because theoretically a quizzer can be in the wrong verse in their minds, but not be counted correct because um, of just the way the material's structured. Um, and there's a very, very, it's pretty much the exact same um, setup from John 6.9 and John 6.13. One verse has five small barley loaves, and the other verse has five barley loaves. So if I'm asking the CBR five what from 6.13, which is just five barley loaves, if the quizzer says five small barley loaves, then I can call them out of context for going into verse 9. But conversely, if they're in verse 9, if I'm asking a question from verse 9 and they say five barley loaves, I'll say again uh, until they get small. But I can't, I'm not going to call them out of context for going into verse 13. And when I say, like, I can call them out of context, it's not like I'm rooting for them to go out of context. But I want to reward quizzers who know the material enough, well enough, to be in the correct context. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and... And me counting them wrong if they go out of context, in my mind, is rewarding the quizzers who know the material well enough to stay in the correct context the whole time. Yeah. Well, and interestingly enough, in six nines, the word small, five small barley loaves, small is a unique word. So it's very similar to the previous example. Yep. It's kind of a carbon copy. Um, and I asked one or two of those CVRs, and I was prepared to have to rule, make a difficult ruling, but... Thankfully, in both both times, the quizzers were spot on and quoted it well and got it correct. And actually, um, our next question is a different question, but in the same one of the same verses. So in John six nine, um, here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. Boy is a chapter um, unique word, and I had the cr written what boy? A boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. 
Now, ignoring the fact that you don't like this question because the answer comes from the opposite side of the interrogative, yep. um, a quizmaster made a note and said, might this be a multiple answer? How about you take a stab at this first, Griffin? Ooh, multiple answer. All right, so 6-9. Uh, here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two fish. Uh, what? Well, gosh. Okay, I see the point. The trouble with this is the word with. Because here's the thing. If I'm going to write this as a multiple answer question, then I need to write boy with what? Right? Um, I need the word with there, right? Because to me, with... Okay, so here's the thing. To me, a multiple answer question, I want to be able to take those multiple answers and be able to theoretically provide them in any order, although I understand there are certain contexts where that can't happen. Um, so this is not a hard and fast rule. Uh, it's just more like, like it's a Griffin feeling of I would really love to be able to have them be in either order and, and the, and the verse actually makes sense, right? So, uh, a boy with two small fish, and five small barley loaves. I mean, that totally makes sense. It flows. It works. So for me, I would want my multiple answer to be boy with. That being said, it's not actually required to do that. And to top it all off, boy with might be a two-word uh, two-word key phrase. Let's just check it. It is, in fact. So boy with is a two-word key phrase. Ergo, boy with could not be a chapter reference question at all, it could only be a, uh, so like boy with what, uh, would be just a standard multiple answer question. It couldn't be a chapter reference. So ignoring the interrogative on the wrong side, thus making it a horrible question, uh, as you pointed out, I guess technically it could be a chapter reference multiple answer question, but I think boy with just feels better. So I think that what boy is kind of, it doesn't meet the smell test or pass the smell test for a multiple answer. Um, a boy with what is a much better constructed multiple answer. Now, of course, just because, I mean, it, the with is, I think, pretty important to make it a multiple answer. Now, if the verse said, here's a bright and intelligent boy, what boy, you know, that definitely would be a multiple answer. Um, and we see that sort of construct of multiple answer all the time. Now, one construct I was throwing around, like, what if it said, here's a boy of, like, meaning from, but, like, here's a boy of Jerusalem and Galilee or something like that? Well, we write that what boy as a multiple answer all the time, that sort of construct. Uh, but here, the word with just kind of, um, like, the with is really the key word making this multiple answer. And so I think I think what boy is a clear chapter reference single answer, and a boy with what is a clear multiple answer, no reference necessary. Yeah, I kind of agree. The thing is, though, if boy with is clearly a multiple answer question, no doubt about it, right? Um, it's also just a strict multiple answer, not chapter reference. The thing, though, is if you key off of boy only without the word with, I mean, I don't know that it's a clearly not a multiple answer question. I don't think it, I don't think it works well as a multiple answer question. I think it's kind of, it feels wrong, but I don't know. I don't know. Uh, it feels like you could probably squint and call it a multiple answer. And, and ergo, that's why I'm kind of like, I can see where, I don't know who, which quizmaster marked this, but I can kind of see the point of like, well, is this a multiple answer? It kind of, it, it definitely leans in that direction. Yeah, I just don't think it is. Um... Now, don't get me wrong. I wouldn't want to write it as a multiple answer chapter reference question, right? It doesn't feel right 
to, like, I want the word with to be included in the question to be able to be a clean multiple answer question. But I don't know, it just feels, instead of feeling obviously not a multiple answer question, it feels a little bit on the, the ambiguous end of the spectrum to me. Yeah. So last bit, I kind of wanted to, this is something I revisit fairly often because I think it's, I think it was, there was a convention that I considered to be incorrect. Um, and that's talking about the use of the word quoting and then the first answer of a quizzer. So in the rule book, it says, let me find it real quick. Uh, I remember this challenge. Can you remember the reference, Griffin? Oh, no, I can't. I cannot remember the reference. But I know the exact situation that you're talking about. Um, why is my search of a PDF so broken? Let's see here. Looking for correct answers. All right. So only the first answer of the quizzer will be considered correct, will be considered. Um, however, if the information given by the quizzer is within the context of the material and is not incorrect, the quizzer has their full 30 seconds to continue answering. So um, the first bit is around only the first answer of a quizzer will be considered. Now, people talk about, like, you know, when a quizzer is saying things like, did they give an answer? Well, in my mind, any word that they're saying can count them incorrect. And so I think in the same vein, any word they're saying can count them correct. And so I don't, I think, I don't really consider there to be any quote-unquote thing that is an answer by a quizzer. Like, it's all an answer. And... It doesn't matter to me how they state it, if they state it while quoting an entire verse or not. Like To me, they're giving me material that can either count them correct or incorrect. Um, and there's no such thing like a discrete definition of an answer by a quizzer. Do you have any thoughts before I move on? No, but was just going back to what trying to figure out where this was, the specific example. Was this from John 646? Let's see here. 646... I don't I, think so. But there was something like a only God, only... There was like a God, only, or something like that connected in the answer, and it was because only was part of a, a, a phrase a little bit later on, and it got convoluted to the beginning. I forget exactly. I wish I could Maybe remember. It's, it's not 118, is it? Um, like, who is himself God? Um, no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God. I, I remember... I remember it being an is, like who is question with the answer being God, and then sent being somewhere in the beginning of the verse, the word sent. But I can't, or the one who is from God or something. I can't remember it specifically. But anyway, so back to the rule book. Only the first answer of the quizzer will be considered. I don't consider, like, anything to be a discrete answer by a quizzer. To me, they're just giving me information within their 30 seconds. Um, so it's not like they say something for... Th and they take three seconds to say it, and then pause for ten seconds. Well, it's not like I consider the first three seconds of talking to be their full and complete answer, and now I can't listen to anything else. Um, that seems super bizarre and not defined and subjective. So to me, it's all information and material that the quizzer's given me. So the second thing is, like when I was quizzing, it was said all the time by coaches and quiz masters and other quizzers, like, make sure you're always quoting and not, like, merely giving an answer. Um, with the implication being, if you're quoting an entire verse or large parts of the material, you're given more leeway 
um, by the Quizmaster. And I think in a very general sense, this is true. Now, getting more specific, if you, search, if you search the rulebook for the word quoting, it doesn't exist. There is nothing talked about in the rulebook um, about quoting, defining quoting, nothing about that. And so to me, um, I see some Quizmasters um, make rulings that I consider to be too lenient because the quizzer was giving a whole verse. And the situations I, I always make up is if I'm asking the question, like, who was there? And the answer is Peter. If the quizzer says, like, just an interrogative question, if the quizzer gets up and says any other name than Peter, you're counting them wrong immediately. No one is batting an, an eye, and everyone agrees that they should be counted incorrect because they gave a different proper name. But if you have this big, long verse that says... John was there with Jesus and some of the other disciples and Thomas and Peter. Um, and then and then later in the verse it goes, and Peter was there. And the, the quizzer's like quoting along with this verse and maybe they mix up some of the names and they say like, and Thomas was there. Well, I think quiz masters in that situation are much more likely to let the quizzer continue answering. And they use the the logic of, well, they just like messed up quoting this verse and they should be allowed to quote it. And they should be allowed to fix it. Well, in my mind, you can't interchange proper names anywhere. And it doesn't matter how much other correct material you're giving surrounding whatever it is. Um, And so I would count them wrong at the very second they said Thomas was there because they've given incorrect information. But I think a lot of people would say, well, the quizzer's quoting. I'm going to let them correct themselves. What do you think of all that? No, I completely agree. Um, I think if they were quoting and they didn't mix up the name, right? So for example, let's say Peter and Peter was there is at the end and John and the, it starts out John and, and Mark and Bob was, were all there, that kind of stuff at the beginning. And then it, and it concludes if the person, if you get to the end who was there, and, and of course I'm butchering the question, and and you're ultimately calling for Peter, and the person starts with John, but then is actually quoting, as long as they don't mix up the words, I would count them correct. Even though the first word that came out of their mouth was John, if they were, now if they said John paused and then started to quote, I might be like, I'm not so sure about that. But if they're clearly just like, John and Bob and Ed were there and Peter was there, right? Then I'd be like, okay, fine, that's fine. Uh, but yeah, if they end up uh, mixing the order around, putting Peter up front and Bob at the end uh, so that Bob satisfies the, the the question being asked, then yeah, they're, they're incorrect. They don't have a chance to go back and, and fix it up. Yeah, and I think it feels harsh when the quizzer is quoting a big, long verse and they're getting everything in it correct – and then they just, like, mix up two proper names. It feels harsh to say, call them incorrect at that moment. But if it was just, if they were just answering the little bit, um, it would not seem harsh at all. And I think we're kind of, as quiz masters, we can be blinded by all of the other correct information that they're providing. Um, and I don't think that should happen. And in a similar vein, um, there's lots of names of groups of people in the Gospels, like chief priests, Pharisees, teachers of the law, leaders of the people, Jewish leaders, um, leaders, the Jews, um, and all. And I usually take a pretty hard line. I'm treating those as pretty proper names of people and not getting into the the finer, like, well, was there any overlap in practice between um, the teachers of the law and the chief priests? Or, you know, 
You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's appropriate because the idea is we're, we're, we're quizzing on the material, not the interpretation of the material. And so to be able to say, well, the Jews are a superset of the Jewish leaders, uh, it's like, okay, well, yes, logically, technically that's true, but these things are not interchangeable. Uh, and Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, uh, Jewish leaders, the, t- uh, the chief priests and teachers of the law, absolutely, they're all individually unique in and of themselves. They can't be, they can't be replaced. Um, but I wanted to go back to kind of one of, one of the things you were saying. I think, yes, I think quizmasters are, 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 you know, as somebody is quoting something, quizmasters err on the side, uh, and probably genuinely err, make the error of erring on the side of counting somebody correct when they should count them incorrect. But I think that, that goes back to this sort of innate bias in all good quizmasters, right? All good quizmasters want to count everyone correct all the time. Like we, we have this d- burning desire to make sure everyone gets a 90. But the problem is we can't do that because the moment we start going down that that slippery slope, we invalidate the true 90s and we're not rewarding, in fact, penalizing uh, the people who have who've put the extra time in to genuinely earn the 90. Exactly. And I mean, I always start from the standpoint of like, I want to count the quizzer right if I can. But if I don't think they meet the requirements of a correct answer, I'm going to call them incorrect. And it's not out of lack of empathy. It's because that... Um, maintains the appropriate reward for the quizzers that can meet the requirements of a correct answer. And we want to be encouraging that. Well, and I mean, you know, we, uh, we were, we were officiating in room one together a fair bit, uh, you know, a couple of days ago, uh, because my voice was, was uh, off the rails. Uh, There were a lot of times where we were, you know, sitting back and trying to figure something out and and trying to, you know, uh, make a ruling. And and in in virtually every time, uh, at least from my perspective, I think it was yours as well. When we were contemplating something, a lot of it was trying to figure out a reasonable, fair, consistent way of counting somebody correct. That's that's it's it's all sort of like when I'm when even in a quiz master, when I'm a quiz master in a room by myself, when I'm when I'm debating like like, can I count this person correct? That's kind of what what, what I'm that's where I start from is the is the is there a reasonable consistent legal way I can count them correct rather than so I'm almost starting the question from a biased point of view in 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 a sense. Sure. And whenever I'm making a ruling, I want I want to be able to use language from the rule book that I am comfortable and confident that I can use again and again and be consistent when I'm ruling. Yeah, absolutely. Consistency in rulings is absolutely paramount. But there were definitely times where we were conflicted and we said, well, let's let's err on the side of leniency to the quizzer and let an opposing team challenge if they want. Um, and that did happen once. Um, but there are times where it's a judgment call and we might be truly 50, 50, but we'll just go 50% towards the, the, the quizzers, <laughs> um, benefit and see if someone challenges. And I think, um, it worked out as designed. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the thing. Quizzers who are listening to this and coaches too, um, when a, if you have a quiz master and a, an answer judge, sit there trying to figure an figure out a ruling for a while and then they come back with okay here's our ruling the fact that they took 
you know, a minute or two to figure out the ruling does, does in no way mean that you should not challenge, right? It doesn't mean that, oh, well, they thought about it for a long time. They put a lot of thought into it. I probably shouldn't challenge because they're pretty certain, you know, they, they, they've adjudicated all of that needs to be adjudicated. I'm not going to be able to be, I'm not going to be successful if I challenge. Don't think that way. If you've got a good case, uh, absolutely stand up and challenge. Uh, I'd be willing to bet probably more than half the time, maybe more than two thirds of the time, the, the quiz master and answer judge are actually kind of hoping you do challenge. Absolutely. I mean, for, for experienced quiz masters, I mean, for the most part, the longer they deliberate means, um, the more it's a very, um, subjective judgment, um, call. Um, there's not a whole lot of things that the quiz master has to figure out. Um, and so, yeah, it, the longer time the the longer time that's spent deliberating often means it is more subjective and um, almost it's almost like you should have a a timer in your head and um, your willingness to challenge goes up as the deliberation continues. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think that's very very true. I think that's all for me too for right now. But I haven't finished reviewing all of the questions that were marked for edit. Um, and going through my own notes, so there might be more by the time next podcast rolls around. Fantastic. Well, we got distracted with a couple of very interesting topics, so I'm actually thinking we should skip our chapter reviews because we have a few questions from listeners that are very interesting, and we're probably not going to be able to get through all of them, but I think we should try to get through some. Uh, so, Scott, what do you think about just jumping down to some of those questions? Yeah, shall I hit the first one? Yeah, go for it. So... We had a quizzer email in, and this is their question. In the rule book, under the description of an answer judge, it says, the answer judge has the authority to overrule the quiz master. It seems that that never happens. Is that because you, meaning the officials table, come to an agreement every time, or are the answer judges super polite, or is the rule being overlooked? And I think this is a very insightful question because it shows that a quizzer is reading the rule book and considering its application in our district. Um, and I think there's a lot of reasons. One of the main reasons is that, um, in general, the officials, the role of the official reflects kind of their experience. So, in general, your quiz masters are going to be most experienced, your answer judges are going to be next most experienced, and your scorekeepers are going to be next most experienced. And so just because of that, it'll be fairly rare for someone with a, a lesser experience level to feel confident enough to overrule someone with a greater experience level. Not to say that that doesn't happen, but in general, um, that's kind of the dynamic that plays out. I think the second part is, like my practice always is, if an answer judge disagrees and it ends up that we disagree right to the end, well, then I present their ruling, um, the answer judge's ruling, as the officials' table ruling. So the quizzers and the coaches may have no idea whose ruling it was, but I don't think they should. I, I don't think they should know. Um, the fact that there was a disagreement at the table doesn't really matter. We're just trying to get it right, and it's being conveyed as the official ruling from everyone at the table. Um, I think it'd be pretty petty for a quizmaster to announce it like this was someone else's ruling that I don't agree with. I don't think that's <laughs> a healthy thing to do. Um, and it, I think it's only happened once, but there was definitely a case for my answer judge um, felt differently. They were very experienced. Um, felt strongly about it, and I announced the ruling as the table's ruling. Um, yeah, I think those are... And then, also, we rarely have answer judges these days. <laughs> yeah, that's um, very true. 
But yeah, I mean, I've been I've been a quiz master far more than I've been an answer judge. But in both contexts, in both wearing both hats or either hat, I don't think I've ever been in a situation where the answer judge and the quiz master ultimately didn't come to an agreement, right? Like, I think I think there's been plenty of times where an answer judge might lean one way and a quiz master might lean another way, uh, but then the two of them talk it through, figure out a reasonable way of, of getting to a conclusion and, and then make a ruling. And it, I've never, I don't think I've ever been in a situation where a, a either as a an answer judge or as a quiz master where the the two roles differed and the quiz master ultimately had to say okay I'm well will announce I, the, I I've never seen a situation where the quiz master had to announce the ruling as per the answer judge but not what the quiz master actually wanted the ruling to be um that being said it may have happened in rooms that I have visited where I was not at the officials table uh and I would never know and I think that's appropriate I don't unless I am the either the quiz master or the answer judge I shouldn't know yep now I think one situation that this rule in the rule book is can be important is um, at meets between districts. So say like your Great West or inter- or Winter Nationals or Internationals. And my feeling has been since I've been running a district for um, a few years now is that it's it's up to the leaders of qu- and organizers of a quiz meet to set up a competitive structure such that none of the the um, participants have any sense that there could be unfairness. And because of that, like there are little, little vagaries between districts um, in their local rules, um, conventions and um, tribal knowledge and how they rule um, on certain situations. Um, but when you get to these inter-district meets where you have officials from almost always one of the districts, like is a quiz master, um, someone might think, well, hey, their rulings might benefit those from their district, either consciously or unconsciously. Well, almost always you see an answer judge from a different district. And I think because of that mix of districts at the table and the fact that the answer judge can overrule the quiz master virtually eliminates any sense uh, or any thought of the participants that there could be any unfairness. Um, And I think that's a very healthy thing um, to kind of have. It's kind of, just like um, balance of power, right, between judicial and legislative and executive branches of government. It's just um, keeping things divided for the general well-being of those underneath it. Yeah, I completely agree. So I think those are some of the reasons, but it's always like I remember when I would quizmaster answer judge at those sorts of meets, I would like talk to my other official and say like, hey – do you want me checking with you before I make a ruling? Um, do we just kind of want to give each other a look? Um, will you make it clear if you need more time to think about this? And we kind of work it out beforehand, and it's always worked great. I've I've worked with officials from Canadian Midwest and Western Canada and Central, and those might be the only ones, but um, yeah, it's always been great. Yeah. I've also, I, I forget if this is in the rule book anymore, maybe it used to be and it's not anymore, but I think at least there used to be a situation where the answer judge is ultimately the one who is supposed to uh, state whether somebody is correct or incorrect on a quote or the finish the or a finish the verse, not the quiz master. But in practice, that never happens. Um, basically, so like in room one, uh, Scott was the quiz master. I was the answer judge. I never made a ruling on like a, a, a finish the verse or a or a quote or anything like that. Um, 
I was always following along and, you know, had Scott made some sort of incorrect ruling, I would have basically said, no, wait, they didn't say this word or something along those lines, but like it never came up. Um, and so like, and from, from my perspective, both as an answer judge and as a quiz master, I think that's c completely fine. I mean, the idea being that it, it's sort of irrelevant to me whether the answer judge says you are you are you are technically correct on a quote question versus the quiz master. I think there needs to be, you know, wh whoever is doing it, the other person is also following along so that there's two eyes reading. Uh, because if there are some quizzers who shall not be named uh, in the Pacific Northwest who are quoting, say, a, quote these two verses and they go through at lightning speed, I think it's useful to have more than one set of eyeballs trying to track along with uh, the speedy reading. Yep. In the rulebook on page nine, it says all conferring among the quiz master and answer judges shall be done privately. The spokesperson will announce the decision. The head answer judge shall be the spokesperson for the group. Um, and you could be as literal or, you know, poke holes in that. But it is it is saying that the, the answer judge is the spokesperson um, in practice. I've never seen it done done that way. I don't think anyone cares. <laughs> um, there's. I've never encountered a power struggle between a quiz master and an answer judge, but I think um, at least the explicit authority being given to the answer judge, I think can help um, just the competitive structure and people never giving a thought to the fact that there could be unfairness. It's yeah, great. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So our next question um, was in the rule book under quiz master, it says that the score should be announced often. This seems to not be the case. From my experience, the score is announced almost solely after a timeout or if a score check is requested. And that is that is very true. Um, the Quizmaster doesn't announce the score often. I don't know if some of this language originated from pre-technology um, when the announcing of the score was by the Quizmaster was the only way that people knew the score, aside from coaches keeping their own score. But um, Quizmasters don't do it a ton. Um, and I... The, the quiz master or the scorekeeper is happy to do it whenever a score check is requested. But yeah, this is just kind of one of those things that's not followed as much. Yeah, and I think maybe we should do a better job of it, especially in rooms two, three, and four, or any room that doesn't have a projected scoreboard. I mean, in, in room one, uh, especially at this last meet and the meet before, we had a, a, a projected scoreboard. And like at this last meet, the projected scoreboard was very easily visible to all of the quizzers and all of the spectators and the coaches and everything. And I think it was actually accurate most of the time, <laughs> which is also kind of a, a nice bonus. Uh, and so, you know, the idea of saying, well, what's a, you know, announcing the score or doing a score check, it's like, well, it's just right there, you know, just, just read it, you know, kind of stuff. And I think, I think there was at one point somebody asked for the score and, and, I, and, and Scott, I think you read it out and it was no big deal, but it was kind of weird because it was like, well, the score's right there projected on the wall and yes, it is accurate, you know, that kind of thing. But in rooms like, you know, two, three, and four, uh, or five, if we have a fifth room at some point, uh, you know, if we don't have a projected scoreboard, uh, yeah, I mean, especially for coaches who are not tracking score uh, th throughout the quiz, it can be really difficult to understand where you are. I mean, it, as a quizzer, even on the platform to say like, well, it's more than just the score, I think that, that matters. It's sort of like who on what team is at what sort of question count. I mean, are they at three and two or are they at two and one, two and zero? You know, you know, across the entire stage of people, those sorts of details matter. 
Uh, and that sort of stuff is, uh, it's, it's tricky to track even as a coach, right? Cause you're sitting there as a coach and you're, you're racing down, tracking all of the, the scores and jumps and so forth on your own, on your own local score sheet, while you're also trying to pay attention to what's happening on the stage. What's happening in terms of like, am I seeing a team hit a fatigue wall? How's my team doing? Are they focused? Are they distracted? What's going on? And being able to play all of that together as a coach is, is pretty distracting. Having the ability to say like, as a, like if I was, if, if I had the luxury of being a head coach and having an assistant coach where the assistant coach kept the score and I could focus on what was going on on the stage and try to read people's faces and so forth. I think it would, I would be at a much better, I, I would be a much better coach than if I was, you know, frantically trying to do everything myself. So the idea of a, of a coach trying to rely somewhat on the announced score in the other rooms is, um, uh, I, I don't know. I think I, I'm, I'm going all around in circles, but I think on uh, number one, yes, I think we need to do a much better job of announcing the score at a much more uh, reliable state. I mean, maybe it would be a good idea to say like every five questions we announce the score or something like that, whether it's requested or not. Maybe that's a, I, I don't know if that's a good idea, but it's, uh, it's something that I'm thinking of as, as a way to kind of get us into the practice of announcing the score more regularly. But beyond just the score, I think the question counts per quizzer are incredibly important, especially when you're talking about getting into the championship levels, uh, you know, the, the, the final bracket stages and then in the, into the championship quizzes, who's at what count at what point in the quiz almost becomes more important than the score uh, in, in terms of like what's happening in the middle of a quiz. And so that uh, it's almost like you really need the projected score, uh, the scoreboard to be able to see all of that information at once. Yep. Um, I think, most often, quizzers are very timid. They view the quiz master as the boss and don't want to ask things. Um, and I, I always want to push the quizzers. Like, I want you to feel empowered to say, I can't see your mouth, or can you talk louder, or there's um, the sun from outside is shining right in my eyes, or what's the score, <laughs> um, or I'd like to challenge. And so I want quizzers to not to kind of decrease any reverence or intimidation they have around the quiz master and um, ask questions and um, feel like they can make things more to the way that they want them. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, one example of that, too, is uh, quizzers who will ask for the reference of a question that was just asked, right? Now, of course, if we provide you the reference, nobody can challenge. Uh, so, you know, you can't ask for the reference and then challenge once you have the reference. But if you're true, it, most, most of the quizzers who are asking for a reference, they're just, they're just genuinely interested. They, they, they're like, yeah, I think the ruling is right, but I, I, I can't remember where in the material this question came from. And they're just curious, uh, and they ask for the reference. That's totally reasonable. And, and I like that sort of interplay, the interchange that happens there. Uh, and, for spectators, too, hearing that back and forth is a way to kind of draw spectators into the process as well. Yep. And as a reminder, if a quizzer does ask you for the reference or any sort of clarification on a ruling, um, the quizmaster is required to, without saying anything else, um, ask the general question, would anyone like to challenge? Um, it gives the opportunity to anyone um, to challenge before that uh, extra information is given out. Yeah, absolutely. Next bit. I can't remember if this was from the, from the same quizzer or not, but um, this first part is right from the rule book. On a chapter verse reference question or chapter only reference question, if the quizzer has given all the information in the question and the answer and the complete question was not read, 
the quizmaster will ask, what is your question? And the comment from the quizzer was, I may be misremembering, but I believe that generally quizmasters will say more instead. I'm a little confused by the wording, though, so that may be the problem. So in this case, if the quizzer has given all the information in the question and the answer, the quizmaster has to pr- has to prompt with what is your question. If they, in practice, prompt with more or anything else, that's misleading and is definitely open to a challenge. Yep. Cut and dry, black and white. Yep. Um, now, if a quizzer is quoting along fast, the quizmaster is not required to, like, at all costs, jump in and prompt right when the quizzer finishes with all of the required information. Um, but the quizmaster should be prepared and know what, like, where that point is. And if there's any sort of pause given by the quizzer, jump in with what is your question. But if the quizzer's just trucking along, the quizmaster is not obligated or required to just jump in pell-mell. Um, but that's definitely a case where, you know, just be on the lookout, and you can definitely challenge if a quizmaster does not prompt at the right time or prompts with the incorrect wording. Um, I had a question. I was running a practice recently, and a quizzer asked the question. Um, in the rulebook, it says that all keyverse questions have to be answered word perfectly. And I've seen cases where a quizzer misses a word or says a word wrong, and they're still ruled correct. Should I challenge? And I said, absolutely. Um, Quizmasters should always be striving to do everything perfectly. Um, But at the same time, if they don't and the quizzer doesn't challenge, um, I think the quizzer really doesn't have a whole lot of grounds to complain about it. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Shall I take this next one, Griffin? We still got time. Yeah, let's keep going. So it was, whenever I quiz against certain teams or certain quizzers, I never win jumps against them. How can I improve on that? Uh, I think it's a great question. And I think that's part of the art of Bible quizzing is deciding your strategy about memorization, about question types, about jumping speeds. There's a lot involved that can help you. um, Or there's a lot of aspects on the, the trail to quizzing well and scoring well. And it helps to analyze all of them. So, for example, I think that reference questions, chapter verse references and chapter references, are among the most difficult questions, if not the most difficult. But I also observed that because they were considered by just about everyone to be the most difficult, there weren't a ton of quizzers really working to get them. And so because of that, in my mind, they became quite easy if you are willing to work hard to learn the material well. Conversely, keyverse questions are easy in the sense that you know the verses that they will be on, and those verses are roughly a fifth of the total material. But a lot of other quizzers realize this as well, and that increased competition, to me, made them quite difficult. And so there's there's definitely this interplay of how inherently difficult is a question type, both in how much material memorization is required and how finicky or technical getting the question right could be and how many other quizzers are trying to do it. And so I see cases where a quizzer is really good at key verse questions, but another quizzer is better. And so whenever they're in a quiz together, the better quizzer gets all of them and shuts out the quizzer who's not quite as good. So I think you have to be very realistic about your study And if you are not, say, the best keyverse quizzer, you have to be fine. You have to accept the fact that if you run up against a better one, you won't get any questions. Now, if you're fine with that, um, you know you're a top 20% keyverse quizzer and you'll get enough of them over the course of the meet and score good enough, then, hey, 
if you're happy with it, go for it. But if you want more than that, then you have to really think about are there other types that can help me score better, that can kind of diversify my strategy. Um, I've, I've seen this in internationals. Interrogatives are plentiful, right? They're half the questions. But they're also, they require you to quote the least amount of material. And so a lot of the districts that don't know the material very well jump super fast on interrogatives and just hope it's something super unique and super with a super short answer. And as a result, it makes it tough for the quizzers that do know the material really well to consistently get interrogatives. Um, and so I always like it when a quizzer who really wants to score well at internationals um, picks a few different question types. And it kind of um, prepares them for those quizzes or those opponents that might make it almost futile to, to try to get a certain question type. Yeah, and from my perspective, I want to take sort of the the opposite side of the coin here. Scott listed a, a, a lot of really good advice around what to do. I want to sort of highlight something not to do. Don't artificially increase your jumping speed be, to try to win the jump. Uh, against a team that you're you're struggling to win jumps over, like like don't don't just speed up. Uh, like if you try to get as fast as you can for the accuracy that you're wanting to maintain, regardless of who you're competing against. And if somebody jumps faster than you, don't match their speed because they're gonna they're gonna basically pull you into erring a, a, a lot, uh, and your accuracy is gonna go way way down. You will you will be better served by missing the jump and maintaining your accuracy than by pre jumping. Absolutely. So there's three aspects to getting to scoring well in quizzing, and it's um, how fast do you want to jump on a given question type? So how many syllables on an interrogative, say, or a finish the verse? Then it's um, how many jumps can I expect to win in this quiz jumping at this rate? And then lastly, it's um, jumping at this rate, how many can I expect to get right? So take interrogatives. You're going to run into 10 a quiz. Well, if you jump at one syllable, you're probably going to win all 10 of them. Um, but I would be very surprised if your accuracy is above 10% at one syllable. So that's not going to be a, a viable long-term strategy. Um, conversely, if you jump at 10 syllables, you, you might get every single one of those interrogatives correct, but you might win none of the jumps. And so you're figuring out how to marry the, kind of balance the two, like jump fast enough that you win the jumps, but that you can also get them right. And I often have quizzers say like, how do I jump faster? Or how do I like win the jumps? And to me, that's almost the incorrect question. <laughs> it's, how do I know the material well enough to be accurate at the jumping speed needed to win the jump? And it's it's a more involved question, and you have to know a lot more about yourself. Um, but that's the way to really get improve your scores. Right. And the number of syllables is going to change based on the question type and even based on the first syllable that you get. If you get a, a W-sounding syllable as the first one, you're definitely going to want to hesitate for half a syllable or more. Uh, you know, relative to something that's a little bit more key. So, I mean, it, it's, there isn't a specific, you know, always jump at 2.5 syllables, you know, um, it's, it's going to vary and it's going to vary not just between question type, but it's also going to vary between question type between material years, right? There are, there's some, some material that is far more key, uh, to jump on than other material. Uh, depending upon the uniqueness of it, uh, depending upon the repetition of the material. So there are some years where the material itself will cause slower jumping, 
Uh, even if everyone has every verse perfectly memorized, you need to slow down relative to, say, maybe a previous year or vice versa. Maybe there's an opportunity to go slightly faster because uh, in this particular year, as opposed to last year, because of the material uh, uh, being slightly different. Those sorts of questions, uh, those sorts of questions of like where how fast you want to jump and, and the strategy behind that is it's a, it's a question of like, how far can you feel comfortable throttling up to get to an error rate that you're willing to uh, accept? And those things are going to be different depending upon the quiz that you're jumping in, right? So if you're in a prelim quiz uh, at a district meet uh, versus say a championship quiz at district championships versus a great West quiz versus an internationals quiz, your jumping speed and accuracy probably needs to be something wildly different uh, for each of those situations. Absolutely. And there's a ton of variables that Griffin and I have just thrown out that can seem super daunting. But in general, I mean, talk with your coach, but there's just a few things you have to get a feel for to do better in quizzing. So it's like, know how many syllables you're jumping on, and then have a sense for um, how many you're going to get right. Um, And now if you're trying to either qualify for internationals and do really well in internationals, well, then the bar becomes much higher um, as far as how detailed you need to be in your preparation, how much work you need to do, then like quarters of syllables matter and whatnot. But if you're just a quizzer trying to get more than a question a quiz or even get a question a quiz, you just need to know like if I can jump at anything faster than five syllables on interrogatives, I will probably win enough jumps and I know enough material to get a few of them right. Um, but I mean, Griffin's totally right. Depending on your opponents or whether it's prelims or bracket, like it definitely informs how fast you need to jump. Um, and again, there's need to jump, which is um, how many jumps can I win based on my competition. But then there's also how many can I expect to get right at that speed. And there's a quizzer in our district who is a very good quizzer now. And while they have improved their material knowledge over the years, the thing that's improved the most has been their discipline about the speed of jumping used to be they would jump very fast and it didn't matter if it was prelims, semifinals, if they had two wrong, if they had three right, they just jumped at a fast speed. And as a result, their scores did not reflect how well they knew the material. They hadn't, they hadn't executed, added good execution to their good memorization. Whereas now they have combined those two and score very, very well in a very, very consistent manner. All right, very cool. Well, on that note, we should probably wrap it up and uh, put some of the other questions that we didn't get to into next week's uh, podcast. And so with that, I want to remind everybody uh, once again to please email us additional questions, uh, comments, concerns, negative doubts, fears, paranoia, anything about quizzing, anything about Christianity. Uh, we'd love to be able to talk about any of your questions that you have. Please email us at IQ at cbz.org and you can follow us on twitter uh please do follow us on twitter our account is at inside quizzing and with that uh thanks everybody and thanks scott thanks griffin this was a fun podcast and next week we'll get back to our chapter review and finish up some of the other great questions that you guys have sent in so happy listening and happy studying all right thanks bye guys bye